So we've been in Genesis 40, uh, uh, kind of going through life of Joseph so far. Uh, before I go back uh, to Joseph, I want to start with kind of like a mini sermon before the sermon in a way, um, because I think what Jesus said in Matthew 13 has a lot to do with what we're about to read uh, in Joseph's life. Jesus was telling a parable, uh, and he often used physical things to help us understand spiritual things. Um, it's much easier for us as humans, I think, not being divine like God, to wrap our head around physical things. And understanding the physical helps us bridge the gap a little bit to understanding the bigger, more important, harder to understand, complex things that are spiritual things. And what Jesus said, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for a fine pearl. Uh, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. So the key phrase here that I want you to hold on to in this is the response to this treasure. Whether the, They didn't even name the treasure in verse 44. It's just in some field. We don't know what's in that field, but whatever it was, it was so good that both of the responses here was like giving up. There was nothing in this world that could compare to the worth or the value of this treasure. Nothing at all. Now, Jesus is using this, obviously, to talk about the great principle about this great salvation that is found in him. And I think as we look into Joseph's life and we see what's about to happen here and how it unfolds, we can see kind of what this treasure might look like in spiritual terms and how it just does seem so unbelievable, so incomparable that you'd really just be willing to give up anything for it. And let's, with that, let's, let's go on into Joseph's life. So before I go too far into this already. Let me sum up a little bit from last week. So last week, uh, we saw the brothers. They'd come down for the second time down to Egypt. They brought young Benjamin, and uh, Joseph was doing all kinds of games, I guess you could say. Some might think that he was exacting some revenge on them, but I really don't think that's what was going on here. I think Joseph was really just trying to test the caliper of their heart. Uh, I think God does that to us. He tests our heart on a number of occasions just to see how we'll respond. But we do things with integrity. Um, and uh, at some point, Joseph gets to the point where he, he sends them out again. He, he cleverly kind of puts this cup in Benjamin's bag. And uh, the guys, the, the boys are all leaving, you know, overjoyed. You know, they came down to Egypt thinking they were going to be prisoners and made, held hostage or something bad was going to happen. And then they're leaving very confident. And then they're just barely outside the gate, and here comes Joseph's captain of the guard, the steward, and they're chasing him down. And it's like, oh boy, here we go again. This is the second time this has happened to him. So you got to think in their minds, like, hey, this can't be, right? This can't be happening again. Sure enough, it's happening again. They're like, you did something wrong here, guys. Uh, so they start opening up the sacks, and they go, again, from oldest to youngest. This is the second time that these Egyptians have somehow figured out their birth order, which is astonishing, right? Um, so they get to the last one, and they find the cup. Joseph's cup is there, and it's in Benjamin's sack. And they come back. Now, so they were overconfident when they left. Now they're coming back probably feeling a little overwhelmed, a little defeated. And Judah gives this speech before Joseph. I mean, it's, it, is a, it is a beauty of a speech uh, from Joseph. It is a, it's pretty much a confession that comes back. And he's like, look, we've sinned. You got us. There is nothing I can say. 
But then he goes on and he pleads his case and he makes this great overwhelming case to say, you know what? Do what you want with me, but leave Benjamin alone. Let him go back to his father. Even though he's the one that has your cup, I'll take his place. And at this point, Joseph is just, he's heard enough. He's, he's at, I mean, he's cried two or three times. In fact, I think this is the third time he weeps openly this time in front of his brothers. And he just can't take it anymore. And this is what he says after this great confession that, Ju- that Judah makes before Joseph. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph. When he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, the Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. A couple things. One, he asked the Egyptians to leave. Uh, prior to this, uh, I, I told you like the Egyptians were very uh, racial. Uh, like They would not sit with another race. Uh, the Egyptians thought they were of a divine origin. They all thought they were somehow gods and connected to God in, in a special way. So they, they wouldn't intermix with any other races. So the Hebrews were detestable people. And you saw that during the dinner. You know, everybody had their own tables and so forth. Now, all this time, they thought they were talking to an Egyptian. And now come to find out this guy that they thought was an Egyptian all this time was actually a Hebrew. And what Joseph does is he says, I'm going to get rid of the Egyptians. He's like, now it's kind of like, we're going to have a little family time here. He's like, we're going to talk real here. <laughs> he gets, you know, it's just him and his brothers. He's now no longer using an interpreter. He's now speaking to them plainly in their own tongue in Hebrew. Up until this point, the, the scripture is very clear that Joseph was really masking who he was really well to the point where they were completely fooled. They did not know. They were floored at this point. And he says, you know, Egyptians, get out. I got some words to share here, and you're not going to be special enough to hear them. So he brings his uh, brothers in there, and he says this. And of course, they're terrified. He can no longer control himself. He is to the point where he's heard enough from Judah. He's seen enough, and he just, he's got to let them know who he is at this point. I uh, wondered a lot about this little phrase, he could no longer control himself. And I kind of got to thinking about some uh, examples in my life when I could no longer control myself. Uh, I think I, there's times I've laughed a little too hard at jokes, maybe. Uh, maybe I've, uh, I, I think about the fact that, you know, I pursued my wife maybe a little too over the top at times where she would kind of laugh at me. Uh, you know, and, I, and in my defense, I'd say I couldn't control myself, baby. I, just, I still say that to her, right? <laughs> I can't control myself. Um, but I, I tried to put this in a perspective, like, you look at God and you don't think, like, a lack of control is not something God has, right? That is certainly, I wouldn't want to characterize or put him in a box and say that, that God just can't control himself. But I think to some level, that uh, maybe it's, it's not true to say he can't control himself, but I think to the extent to which he loves us and cares about us, it feels like he can't control himself to some extent. It's almost like it's so a part of his nature to want to be in relationship with us that it's almost out of control. But I would not say he's out of control. But the extent to which he loves us is pretty divinely orchestrated in such a crazy, wonderful way. So he finally gets to the point, verse 3, he says, I am Joseph, 
And I'm betting like a pin could have dropped. These guys, it says their hearts, they were terrified. They pretty much had convinced themselves that he was dead. They, they were now standing before somebody, a ghost in a way. They were, every story that they had ever said about Joseph at this point was like, yeah, they knew they had sold him. But for all they believed, I think they really truly thought he was no, no more. That there's no way that poor young soul that they sold off probably survived. They probably saw the detestable men that they sold him to and probably thought, yeah, he was probably going to get killed at some point. He was an annoying enough brother that they didn't even want to talk to him. They never wanted to be in his presence. They went far away from him all the time. They didn't like the fact he was kind of a tattletale. There was all these things, all these reasons that they hated him. So when they sold him off, they, it was just natural in their mind to convince themselves that, like, he's gone. He's gone. And now here comes the big reveal. He says, I am Joseph. I am this dead man standing before you today. And I think in some ways, this I am statement can't help but think about how many times Jesus said, I am something. If you look back at all the I am statements that Jesus said, and again, keep in mind, Jesus would talk about the physical to help us wrap our head around the spiritual. Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life. Anybody know what it's like to be hungry, to be starving for something? Well, spiritually, we should be starving for God. I am the light of the world. Imagine living in a world full of darkness, what it would be like. I am the door uh, of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And Jesus, standing before a bunch of uh, his adversaries at one point, the Pharisees at this point, were saying, who do you think you are? And basically Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And this was an extremely Hebrew phrase. It was a divine title of saying basically, hey guys, I'm God. So of all the things that Jesus said, and he revealed himself to us in these ways, what do we do with that? Are we terrified when he says these things? Does it shake us to our core like these young brothers were? Are they shocked to find out that this person was standing before them as their brother? I think sometimes when people come to Christ, they're experiencing kind of the emotions that these guys are going through. There's a little bit of terror, maybe. There's a little bit of disbelief, a little bit of skepticism, a little, I just, am I seeing a ghost kind of thing? All these feelings are probably running through their head. What will I do with this information? So then Joseph said to his brother, he says, come close to me. Not like the Egyptians. The Egyptians wanted to stay as far away from the Hebrews as possible. Joseph wanted to make it very clear, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm one of you. I'm a Hebrew. Come close to me. He says, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no more plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Come close to me. Can you not hear the Father saying that now? I, when you hear these words, come close to me, that's what God says when he looks at you. Some of us stand in disbelief and awe. How could a God of the universe, how could somebody so pure and good and perfect want me, not so pure and perfect, to come close to him? But yet, I believe that's the words the Father says to us today. Come close to me. Then you see, there's a good reason why this all happened. In Joseph's mind, 
Uh, now, I will caveat this and say, I don't think Joseph is rolling the crime of what the brothers did up on God. Like, that's the wrong way to read this. I think he's clearly saying, you know, like, what you guys did was wrong. God was not happy with how you did this or anything. That's a crime. But even in our sin, even in our iniquity, God can turn it in such a way that he can use it for his good. Now, I think also the other part where he says, you know, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. I'm not, I don't think he's saying that in a, I think he's probably saying it in a very tender voice right now. I don't think he's saying it in a very vengeful, punitive way. I think he's trying to just basically prove his identity before him. I think this is the second time he says, hey, I'm your brother Joseph. The first time they didn't respond. So now he's like, okay, I guess you need a little more information. I'm the brother you sold, Joseph, remember? You know, like, got it, guys? Like, I think now they're like, okay, he really is. He knows we, that, that must be him kind of thing. And then immediately, he is tender with them. He probably senses the distress in them. Like, these guys don't deserve forgiveness. If you had been sold or treated the way he was treated, like, he is entitled, by all intents and purposes, for the worst kind of revenge possible now. Like, he could have done it, like, surely, if you were that person, you're entitled to do something bad to these people. Take your revenge. Get your wrath. But no, that's not what he does. He reassures them and gives them this feeling of saying, hey, God used what you did for his purposes. And what was God's purposes? It says here, it was to save lives, to preserve, to save Joseph had spent the last seven-plus years preserving food all over the countryside. It got to the point where they said, you know what? You can't even, like, the storehouses were so full, they just stopped counting. There was so much food, so much abundance in those seven years of abundance that it just got so plentiful that they didn't bother looking at, at, at keeping account of it. And I got to thinking about this, like, what has God done for us? What has he been preserving all this time? What is he storing up for us in heaven? Does make you wonder? If the storehouses in Egypt were full, that these guys might survive, the storehouses of heaven are full, that we might live there one day in eternity. Eternity's a long time. We're, aren't we going to run out of food? No. <laughs> not there, not in heaven. God's storehouses are never going to run out. You can't count and measure the storehouse of what God has in store for you. That is like kind of stuff to me, to think about what God is preserving in the salvation of our lives for us one day. Mind-blowing. So then it was not who sent him... Uh, let me start over. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, uh, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. So the famine's going to continue to go on. It doesn't make sense to keep making these trips back and forth. I told you, Canaan and Egypt, they are very far apart. It's weeks apart, not like a you know, quick drive down to the Walmart kind of thing. This is an arduous journey, probably dangerous of lots of people. Probably, you know, you've got to take provisions. 
people in a famine probably want to steal provisions if they see provisions. Um, so Joseph makes kind of the ploy here. He says, you know what? It makes no sense. I know this famine is going to continue to go on. Come on down. I've got this place already set aside for you, a land made just for the Hebrews in some extent. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, it says here that he has made me a, fair, a father to Pharaoh. Now, Joseph was kind of a young man, I thought, so it makes me wonder, like, is Pharaoh younger than him? I don't know. Or is there, Pharaoh has such a, a nice, tight relationship in such a way that he looks up to Joseph like a father figure? I, I don't know. I, I do find it interesting. I don't have an answer why, but I do find uh, that in the spiritual realm that God has set himself up as father to us and that we should look up to him, that we should look to him for answers. Just as Joseph provided a means for having spiritual answers and physical answers made, we should look to God for those answers in our life. So he says, come, don't delay. In other words, you're hearing today and you're thinking to yourself, well, pastor, you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. If I come to him, he's, he is not going to offer me forgiveness. That's not the gospel. That's not true. God says, come and don't delay. The problem is some of us want to stay in our sin or they just they don't believe that God is really big enough. It just seems too good to be true. I'm sure these guys stood before Joseph in, in, in disbelief and saying to themselves, this can't be. I, I deserve I deserve something so far worse than what I'm getting right now, but instead, I'm getting food, a new place to live, I'm getting provisions, I'm getting all this. Salvation has come to me. It's way more than I deserve. And God the Father is saying, come, don't delay. I'm ready to give it to you. But what do we do in our hardness of our heart? We stand there in disbelief. We don't come. We delay. But here he's saying, don't do that. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses anymore. Come to me. And he says, I will provide for you. Christ has already done the work on behalf of us. God sent Christ ahead for us. Just as Joseph was sent ahead for his brothers for their salvation, God already sent Christ ahead for us, for our salvation. And he has already provided for us what we most needed, forgiveness. That's really what's going on here on this passage. That, I, in my mind, that's the treasure that's found in the field. When you find Christ and you say, well, what's worth giving up everything for to be with Christ? What's worth eternal life? What's worth having that relationship with? Well, the fact that he forgave me is worth giving up everything for. The fact that he doesn't give me what I deserve is far greater value than anything I can find in this world. The fact that he's provided before me in such a way, there is nothing that could really compare to that treasure. So that continues on. And he says, you know what? We're going to enjoy this treasure here and in the future. There's a, there's a moment here in conversion as a believer that you have the joy. You, heaven happens here on earth. You, know, you are already experiencing the joy of the Lord to some. You're getting a taste of it, a measure of it. Granted, we still have our sin flesh uh, attached to us. And then one day that, that sin will be stripped away from us and we'll be in heaven and we won't have to deal with that anymore. But we're getting a, a taste of it here now. God wants you to feel that joy here and in eternity. And that's kind of what's happening here a little bit. He says, 
you can see for yourselves, and so, uh, so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accord, accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, it took a little convincing for, for these brothers to finally be like, okay, it's you. And sometimes it takes a little convincing for us to come to Christ, to really realize that the Father really loves me that much, that he really does want to put his arms around me and kiss me. We just need to see it. Joseph's like, just look what you're seeing, right? what is happening right now. Your brother knows who I am. You just need to see it for yourselves, is really what he's trying to say. He says, look at the honor that has been afforded to me. The Bible talks about Jesus and saying that, you know, uh, all honor and glory is due him. We won't have to guess when Christ is coming back the second time, who's in charge. <laughs> like, it'd be pretty obvious who's got the honor, who's got the authority. But right now on this side of heaven, people question that. People look at the darkness in the world, they look at the problems in the world, and they think, God, he's just not doing anything. That's really not true, though. That's a lie. God is in the midst of everything. And this, if anything, this story shows that even in the bad things, that God can turn it around and do some incredibly good things out of it. And it's worth hanging on to that faith for that. Now, notice here it says he kissed all his brothers. It didn't just, he didn't just go up to Benjamin and said, you know what, he's my real brother. The rest of you, eh, you're okay. No, he, it says here he, went, he kissed all his brothers. He took the time one by one and went to each one of them and let them know, like, no, you're special. You matter. You matter. Everybody matters in God's economy. There's nothing that you could have done that's different than somebody else. It's not like God says, well, you know, Scott, he plays the guitar. I like him better. You know, like, I'm going to really love him. No. His economy of scale. He kisses and loves every one of his children. He cares about each and one of us. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all of his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, Lord, your animals... Uh, Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about all your belongings because the best of all of Egypt will be yours. I like the phrase, the best, that's one of my favorite phrases when I see it in the Bible. I kind of gravitate to that. In my mind, I think to myself, God's got my best in his mind all the time. Despite me, despite my agenda and my plans, that God's got something far better than whatever I could have dreamt up. Thank goodness that God's got the best in mind for me. Uh, it says here, they said, take some carts. That's an important little phrase there, and some of us might glance over this like, well, what's the big deal? I've seen a wagon, I've got a cart, I've got a car that I drove in today. In this time in antiquity, something with four wheels was kind of a very special, unique thing. It was not common to the world, known world at this time. Uh, so to go down to Egypt and to have these carts, it would be like a, a Boeing 747 kind of landing in like a village full of savages, 
You know, it's just like the two don't mix. It's out of context kind of thing. So these carts are kind of a big thing, and you'll see how it unfolds. Uh, he says, never mind about your belongings. I, th- I think this is interesting. It kind of harkens back to what I said earlier. You find this treasure, it's far worth anything else that you've got. In fact, so good, you can just, it's no problem, just leave everything behind. When you get to heaven, there is like, I have this picture in my mind. When I get to heaven, there was nothing on earth that was worth saving. Everything is heaven has got to be so far surpassing anything I would ever have on this planet that I should, it should be no worries to leave it behind. It's got to be better. God's got the best of all there is in heaven for us. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave the carts as Pharaoh had commanded him, and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent uh, to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with the grain and bread of other provisions for his journey. And then he sent his brothers away. As they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, you cannot not laugh at that. Um, again, he's sending the best to his father. He's sending these carts. He's sending these provisions. Um, now, keep in mind, last time when Joseph saw his brothers, they were stripping him naked and putting him in a pit. And then they took his clothes and you know, made up the story that he was uh, eaten by wolves or whatever. Now, they come to Joseph and they are leaving, and Joseph's giving them clothes. He does the opposite of what they did for him. They stripped them naked. He's giving them new clothes. In a lot of ways, this is very spiritual about us. You know, Jesus was stripped naked on our behalf, died on a cross on our behalf, but he gives us new clothes. We wear his garments of righteousness. We walk around as if we had never committed a sin because of the clothes that Jesus bestows on us. It's an amazing picture. It seems too grand. It's the best of all things. It says, don't quarrel on on your way. Now, what is that about? These guys are just, you know, they come down. You know, Joseph has seen their interactions. Keep in mind, Joseph hid who he was very well, uh, talked to the interpreter. So he got privy to some of these conversations that they had in Hebrew. Oh, God's doing this to us because we were bad people. You know, like their conscience was pricked from day one. From the time they stood before Joseph to this time, Joseph knows that there is a temptation here that we will go back to the old way of life. And Joseph is saying, you have a new way of life. There's no reason to go back there again. Joseph is offering them full carte blanche forgiveness here. There is no reason to dwell on what has happened in the past. There's no reason to to let the trappings of the old life come back to you, and there's no reason to argue your way to it. He says, you have a new life. You have new robes today. You got a cart. Go. Don't fight about it. Sometimes I think we will get saved. We will experience the joy of the Lord, and then we go back to being the person we used to look like before we experience that joy. And that's a bad trap. It's a bad place to be. God wants us to move on in new life and live like you've been saved. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, 
And when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father revived. And Israel said, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Uh, he did not believe them. You know the irony of this little phrase is when they brought him his robe with the chewed up blood or whatever on it, the, the lamb's blood, he had no trouble believing that his son was gone. That was easier for him to understand and wrap his head around than his son was now back to life. I think oftentimes when people look at the cross, they have no trouble with this understanding like, yeah, he, he got crucified, he died. No, he resurrected. Three days later, he came back to life. Many people don't want to get their head wrapped around that. They, they find it harder to believe the good stuff than they do the bad stuff. It's almost like we gravitate towards the bad stuff and not really accept all the good stuff. So he doesn't believe it. So what convinces him? He looks at the carts, and he's like, what is that? <laughs> and this cart is a big deal, right? It's like taking a ride with Jesus is how I look at it. Like, Jesus is the cart to heaven. There's no way to get to heaven without riding with Jesus. So in some ways, spiritually here, I see this is like the Jesus mobile coming down <laughs> and parked in front of him. And that's what convinced Israel or Jacob that, hey, this is real. Joseph really is alive. Like, it took something kind of extraordinary. You know, it didn't say the donkeys. It didn't say all the gifts. It didn't say the best of the land. It didn't say all these things. It said he looked at that cart that Joseph sent him, the wheels, and he's like, wow, if, if I'm going to go on, on a ride like that, it's probably true that Joseph really is there. And he says, finally, he says, I'm convinced. You got me. It took him that much. All right, so then uh, chapter 46, it says this. So Israel set out with all that he had, uh, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am, he replied. He says, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid. Go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now, Jacob, at this point, he said he was convinced. But yet he goes to Beersheba, and he starts sacrificing. It's an act of worship. It's a, it's a, maybe he was looking for a little bit of reassurance. It was also a very special place. Beersheba is where Abraham lived. It's also where Isaac lived. Uh, there's lots of spiritual things that happened there. Uh, when Jacob was running from his brother Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. He was in Beersheba, and he builds an altar there, a rock pile, so to speak, and he anoints it, and God shows up to him and tells him, hey, I'm going to be with you. And this is a common phrase throughout, uh, uh, throughout Jacob's life. Now, Jacob's going down to Egypt, and maybe he's thinking to himself, like, remember I have told you many a times, Egypt's not a good place. It's like going to Vegas. Uh, it's like bad things happen there. Abraham and uh, his uh, lot go down there, and they come back, and they're not the same anymore. Uh, you know, so things, bad things happen in Egypt. Um, and maybe there's a little bit of doubt, maybe still. Uh, he's convinced that he should go, but yet at the same time, he, he could use some reassurance. I find what's interesting about this passage is Jacob's, he's seen a lot. He's lived through a lot at this point in his life. He's supposedly this patriarch of faith. And, you know, he's, he's, it says when he gets to uh, Egypt, he's 130 years old. He lives to be 147. So, you know, 17 years of his life down there before he dies. At 130, though, he has seen stories. And we've read about them. 
we've seen these, he's seen the army of God show up when he was running from Laban. You know, like there's things that he's been given, these reassurances in his life. At some point, do you say to yourself, well, you shouldn't need reassurances. You're 130 years old. You've seen what God can do throughout your whole life. Why are you doubting him now? Why are you skeptic all of a sudden now? At 130 years old, inexcusable, right? No. God still, no matter what age I think we come to, no matter how much we experience in our faith, there's going to be a tinge of doubt, a tinge of skepticism in them. I think we all hang on to it to some extent. We all hit brick walls. We all have troubles in our life. And we all start to begin to go down that steps of questioning God. And what does God do? He gives us reassurances. He gives us what we need to hear most when we need to hear it most. But I also think it's interesting here that Jacob is kind of all in at this point. Remember I told you earlier, Matthew, you find this treasure, you find this pro, you find this thing of such great value that there's nothing else really in life. You sell everything else, you're sold out to it. Jacob is sold out that Joseph is still alive. He believes. When we find that Christ died and rose again, you're sold out to that. You believe you're all in on that message. So much so that you are willing to sacrifice what it takes to live for that message. And I think that's what's going on here is Jacob's at a point where, hey, I just got to sacrifice something. You know, I'm hoping that at some point in your life you realize like that sacrifice that God made for me, it's so great in value that I got to do something. I, I, I just, I got to go sacrifice something. A part of my life is not right until I go live for him. That's kind of the response and the call that happens here. When you find the kingdom of heaven, it changes you. You now become a person walking sold out in a whole new direction. You're not living in the old life where things of this world matter more to you. God now all of a sudden becomes the primary focus of your life. And now you look through the lens of everything in life and every decision in your life has a God flavor to it because of the ever-increasing worth and value that you found in him. It says here, don't go out afraid. When you come to Christ and when you come to God and when you see who he really is for your life, you're not supposed to be walking afraid. Christians, we should be the least fearful people on the planet because we have a higher place to go. That storeroom of heaven is waiting for us. We got nothing to lose. In light of that, don't be afraid. And not, not only that, is God is not this God that's like he's localized. He's not going to just show up here at church. When you leave church, guess what? God goes with you. Wherever you are, that's where God is. God promises his presence with you. This is astounding compared to any known world religion at that time. It should be still astounding today that God goes where you go, that his presence is what matters. So then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and their carts, and that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with him their livestock, their possessions that they acquired in Canaan, and brought uh, with him to Egypt to his sons and his grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters and all his offspring. Now, I skip most of 46. Uh, at this point in the passage, the passage lists all the sons and all the sons' sons and things like that. Uh, for the sake of brevity, I'm going to jump down to verse 28. Basically, he brings his family, okay? Uh, verse 28 says, Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to go Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his uh, chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms 
as his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. And the phrase that jumps out at me is now I'm ready, ready to die. I'm ready to move on. As Christians, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Words of Paul. Question is, are we ready? Have we experienced the treasure that is worth giving everything up for? Have we really latched on to the value that surpasses anything else that this world have, have, could ever offer us? To the point where you could say to yourself, you know what? To live is Christ, but to die is the gain. How much more we see in the storehouses of heaven stored up for us. One day we'll get to experience glory in a way that we've never seen on this planet, ever, and it'll be incomparable. How am I living now until then? Am I living like in disbelief or do I need reassurances or do I stand convinced in my shoes? I've seen the cart of Jesus. I've seen the cross. I'm ready to take the Jesus ride. I want to jump in that mobile and wherever Jesus wants to go, I want to go. That's the ride I want to be on. If he's telling me to go to Egypt, I'm going to go to Egypt. If he's telling me to go to somewhere, I got to go there. Because I don't want to be anywhere else where Jesus is not going to be for my life. And it may be different for all of us, right? God's calling us to go to different places. But the question is, are you ready to follow him where that, where that road leads, where it's going to take you? And then ultimately, into heaven one day. Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you so much for the word. And thank you so much for the truth. God, it is, uh, it is hard to comprehend this forgiveness that you have for us. God, it's so far beyond what we will ever deserve, uh, but you gave it to us um, in such a, an overwhelming fashion. God, I, I pray that as we wear the robes of righteousness in this life, Lord, that uh, we'd wear them with dignity and honor, and God, that we would represent you well. God, that uh, I pray that um, as we continue to just need reassurances in our life, God, because we struggle. We, we look at the hard times, we look at the troubles, we look at the difficulties that we're facing, and God, it's not easy uh, to deal with this world. But Lord, you promised your presence, and I pray that we would just feel it when we need it most, God, that we'd know you're with us. And God, that we would sense it, and Lord, that uh, we could just overcome some of the things in this world that are getting us down. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.